At the top of the last episode, you learned about this guy. Uh, my name is Mark Guzdile. I am a professor in computer science and engineering at the University of Michigan, and I'm also in the engineering education research PhD program, a new program at Michigan. Mark is a professor in the College of Engineering at the University of Michigan. After his talk at Cornell Tech's To Code and Beyond, I had a chance to sit down with Mark and ask what questions had bubbled up while I listened to his talk live. It was a rare opportunity. Probably my most pressing question, what you're saying is all great, but we've all seen professors like you on YouTube. Mark is brilliant, animated, ukulele playing computer science professor who from my time with him seems as passionate about you learning about his passion topic as he is about the topic itself. He's a rare mix. And what I'm sure many in the audience wonder, what the country is wondering right now is how do we bottle some of that and help thousands of teachers in every state offer young people the experience that surely the students in Mark's class have each semester. For what it's worth, out-of-state tuition at his school is $43,476 with a 26% acceptance rate. A wicked problem indeed. Enjoy my talk with Mark. My thanks again to Cornell Tech and to Code and Beyond for helping connect us. Connecting reminds me, you know what kind of gift is the most valuable one you can give back to the show right now with the device at your fingertips? Connecting your friends to No Such Thing Podcast. For each one of you who does, I'm running a special giveaway right now. It's a podcast hug. It's from me. And you don't need to wait to get it in the mail. Here it comes. There you go. Thanks. This is No Such Thing a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Um, you mentioned that you were an intern at Bell Labs. I was many years ago. Um, I wasn't at the cool research focused one where they built, invented Unix. That would be a nice thing to do. But yeah. now, no, I was at more, I, I worked for the uh, Quality Assurance Technical Center. So these are the people, there's mostly statisticians uh -huh. who are asking the question, how do you test all of the circuit packs and make sure that we keep the five nines reliability, 0.99999% reliability? Yeah. Or whatever it is supposed to be. Yeah. Do you, was it as electric an environment as I imagine it to be at Bell Labs? Um, I, I'll, I'll bet that Murray Hill was. Where I was was actually really interesting. There's lots of interesting places, uh, people there. Homedale was an interesting place, but it wasn't. I was not aware of the cutting edge research. Not being a statistician, I didn't really understand the research. My job was to build when they needed a visualization, when they needed a database. I built those things for the statisticians. Yeah. Uh, but they sent me back for a master's, uh, and that's where I met a bunch of the people in the School of Ed at the University of Michigan. I taught logo at the children's school at Michigan. Oh, wow. Um, and that was sort of uh, where I made the connections that later led to my PhD at Michigan. Well, I am, I am extremely grateful to have you on the show. My pleasure. Um, this show is, is it's interesting that this morning we are here at Dakota and Beyond. This mm -hmm. is the fifth year yeah. of a really brilliant event that uh, is put on by uh, Cornell Tech uh, this year. And last, I believe, uh, we're here on Randall's Island in mm -hmm. a pretty brand new space. It's a beautiful space. Uh, I, I feel like we're in a space odyssey a yeah, little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're in a white room with, um, you know, digital things, but also that, that interplay between kind of like stark monolithic and digital things, which feels very Kubrick. I think I saw a me. black monolith down the hallway here. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, 
So I'm excited to be able to talk to you. And it's interesting that this morning um, referenced in Margaret Honey's talk, uh, Elliot Soloway came up and yeah. you and I traded some emails about your work with Richard uh, E. Clark. I worked, I, my, so I took instructional design from Bob Cosma. Got it was it. actually Bob who convinced me to come back for my PhD. He was, um, so Bob was in the School of Ed, worked in educational technology, instructional design, um, and uh, he reached out to me when he heard we wanted to move back to Michigan from New Jersey and said, we really want to create a joint PhD between education and computer science, but to do that, we need a, a, a victim, I mean, a first student <laughs> who will go through and define the program. Um, so I ended up with, because Michigan has this cool joint degree program, I have a, a PhD in education and computer science. And so I then took classes from Bob, and uh, he and Richard Clark had this famous debate about, Richard put it as, do media make a difference? Yeah. And Bob reframed it as, can media make a difference? Can we teach differently with advanced computational media than we could without it? Yep. Um, so yeah, and th and that's your logo, the the Richard E. Clark, the ice cream truck instead of the uh, grocery truck. Uh, that's right. I like it. That's right. So it was it was sort of uh, in the context of Elliot Soloway was brought up this morning. Uh, just just the sort of general. I think the um, the analogy is the same, right? The sort of Trojan horse mm -hmm. in education. And and um, anyway, it was interesting that that you are probably the first person that I've interviewed who um, saw that story and caught it right away and had connected to it as uh, as much as you did. Um, My first advisor at, uh, at Michigan was Pat uh, Baggett. Pat, oh, wow. Who d did a lot along these lines. She worked a lot on uh, equivalencing media presentations so yeah. that you could say this presentation, this presentation are exactly the same. Now, what's different about them? Uh, I was a student uh, alongside uh, Susan Palmiter, who uh -huh. did some of the really interesting work showing that students learn differently from animations than they do from static Beautiful. sequences. Yes. So, yeah, this, this, this question about, so what do the media add to the, to the educational story has been a big part of my academic life. And you, this is what I'm trying to explore today. Yeah. What does programming bring additionally? Yeah. What can we learn with programming that we couldn't learn without or yeah. couldn't learn as effectively? Yeah. So I actually, I, I want to kind of um, start there. Uh, you, one of the things I get to do in these conversations is, and, and probably the purpose of these conversations in many ways, um, you know, is, is my learning. And I say that very, I'm very transparent about that. Um, with the idea that, uh, if I can be open and transparent about my learning and share it with others, hopefully it's useful. Um, but, um, I got to do a fair amount of research on you and, and hear previous talks and, and, uh, you know, with the power uh -oh. of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 uh. <clears throat> so you've actually seen the ukulele story before. It's all I... a few searches away. Yes. Which was great because, um, it's usually not until the second or third time I've seen something like that that I'm picking up all of it. You okay. know, uh, the first time the general arc was really compelling. Mm -hmm. The second time the detail was great. So, um, Thank you. I appreciate that. So, um, one of the things I want to talk about with you is that I, there is a debate, 
um, nationally, I, I think that um, some of it exists in people's minds, but a lot of it is playing out in the institutions, especially of higher ed, but uh, but in the um, but certainly in the interplay between K twelve and higher ed, mm-hmm. and um, that's the question of the value of humanities. Mm. Um, versus the sort of the hard, um, I'll call them kind of the hard STEM or STEM cognate disciplines or, or domains. And you're somebody who really uniquely, I think, makes an argument that um, computation and computer science, um, these are not um, – your goal as a computer science professor is not about uh, training more computer scientists – it's about um, bringing computer science as a tool mm-hmm. um, and a lens through which we learn, we see and learn things and create things that is critical for everyone. Yep. And so is it safe to ask, you know, is it safe to say uh, you're a believer in the humanities and its role in education? And can you say a little bit about that? All right. So let me, uh, I first want to make sure that if anyone from the computer science department, at the University of Michigan is listening, yes, I care about producing new, more CS majors and professional yes. software developers. I had 120 students in user interface development last semester. Yeah. Um, so I do care about that. My research though, I think the bigger question is how do we use computing to enhance our learning in all kinds of disciplines? Yeah. Um, uh, Humanities, I, I, I don't have a lot of expertise in. When I built the media computation class, uh, as I mentioned in, in, in my talk, I did spend a lot of time with, in focus groups with liberal arts majors. With uh, I had a, a, a committee of uh, a steering committee of faculty from across campus, public policy, uh, literature, and communications, who helped me figure out what's what kind of computer science, what kind of programming makes sense for their students. And it was a challenging task because I'm a big believer in situated learning. Um, there's a theory of learning, uh, uh, Gene Lev and Nancy Wenger, that talk about that what students are really trying to do when they learn is join a community of practice. So I'm teaching liberal arts majors about programming. So the right thing for me to do is just find out how uh, English and communications and public policy experts use programming in their daily lives. The problem is that doesn't really happen yet. Mm. I'm trying to create a future that doesn't exist yet. So I talk to humanities experts to have them tell me, well, what makes sense? And that's where we come up with this idea that for these students, computation is less about calculation, more about communication. They care about digital media. They're going to be producing PowerPoint slides and pictures using all kinds of filters and and, uh, and audio and podcasts and and video. Um, How do those work? How does the digital media in their lives work? So in the same way that we take biology because we live in a world of living things, we take chemistry because we live in a world with lots of chemical things and physics because it's a physical world, these students need to learn about computing that is relevant to their daily lives because they're going to live in a digital world. They're going to live in a world with lots of computation. I see media computation as a way of showing them all of that. Um, A lot of what I'm doing now is to say... If we want students to know these other subjects beyond STEM, beyond uh, <clears throat> computer science, how does computing play a role? So right now, I'm spending most of my, uh, I'm trying to build collaborations at Michigan with history professors. I'm working with Bob Bain, who's a history professor at the University of Michigan, hmm. and Tammy Schreiner, who's a history professor at Grand Valley State University. Um, 
And both of them are actually involved in helping history teachers teach essentially STEM content. Uh, Bob is uh, one of the, the the principal leads on something called the Big History Project. Mm. Are you familiar with Big History Project? Yeah. Heard of this? So he points out that before there were nation states, history exists as long as there have been humans. Before nation states, history was measured from the beginning of time. That's what the Big History Project does. It starts with the Big Bang. And then it goes up through quasars and pulsars. And how did planets get formed? And then how did life come to exist? And it's an amazing... Oh, I love that. It's just, um, and so it's history written as large as you possibly can. But it's an awful lot of science. Um, uh, here's one of the hypotheses that people talk about in here. I, I just I find this a, a stunning picture. So we all know where coal and gas and oil come from. Yeah, uh, it's the world used to be covered in forests that then crashed down, got compressed, turned into coal, turned into oil. Um, today, if a tree outside falls down, it's going to decompose into the soil. Why didn't all those trees that fell? Why did they turn into coal? Why didn't they decompose? Um, one of the hypotheses, <laughs> one of the hypotheses is that the bacteria which decompose wood today hadn't evolved yet, mm. and that's why we got coal and gas. Whoa, whoa! So this is really deep STEM content. It's fascinating content. It whoa. totally fits in a history class. But how do you help a history teacher teach that kind of thing? Mm. And so Bob talks to me about that he wants students to be able to understand these fairly complicated causal chains. Well, a causal chain, as I mentioned in my talk, computers are good at that. Mm. Can I give a history teacher and a history student the tools to make and test causal chains? Are there flaws in my causal chain? Does this causal chain really make sense? Mm. That's something I'm exploring with Bob. Tammy is teaching for the first time right now a new course at Grand Valley State, digital uh, um, data literacy for social science teachers. Mm. How should social science teachers think about and teach visualizations? History books have visualizations in them. One of the things that she's been exploring in her work is, so how do students and teachers think about graphs when they show up in history class instead of math class? I'm fascinated by this because to me, it's also a computational question. How do I provide computational tools to help history students and teachers create visualizations that they still understand the underlying historical relationships and aren't just, please plot A1 through 11 against F1 through F11. Not just an Excel spreadsheet that has meaning. How do I provide tools to to these these social studies teachers so that they make sense? Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, this isn't exactly humanities, it's history, but it's close and it's the closest I've gotten so far in my work to say, where can programming make a difference? Where can programming contribute to the goals of these teachers? Mm. I'm reading a book right now about wood carving. Okay. And, uh, you're making me think of, so there's, there's this, um, a, a, a uh, from the let me think the 17th century uh, wood carver named Gibbons, uh, famous British wood carver, maybe the most famous. I I know v- slim to none about wood carving before I started reading this book. So, um, and the the book is from the perspective of a contemporary wood carver who was basically hired to go and restore. The work of Gibbons. Oh, um, and so wants to understand how it happened. Right. And so a, a big part of this, I'm, I'm actually just, I'm making this realization as we're talking and you're talking about historians um, and doing things like uh, 
uh, modeling data. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of this book is him making all these realizations about the, the bias yeah. that existed at that time mm-hmm. in a particular wood carver's work. Uh, what what tools he was working with, what wood he was working with, what the sort of uh, mindset of other carvers at the time was, and then trying to make decisions about whether to replicate that and sort of to situate it authentically mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, what, what this carver. But what this makes me think, um, what I come back to is um, that – I th- feels important to me is that if historians um, don't have some sense of, well, uh, I'll put it this way: um, the more facile a uh, historian is at creating visualizations of their own mm-hmm. out of data, mm-hmm. um, the the more they understand the bias uh, mm. and can can interpret and pose ways of seeing. The world, like this big history project you're talking about, is a is a brilliant um, moment for that. Where it's like, well, you've seen the universe this way yep. for this long, yep. through the eyes of you know the graphic designers that these you know the textbook graphic designers that these historians have worked with. Yep. Um, now let me tell you uh, the way a historian would and the way a historian would visualize it. I think that's a really powerful. Yeah. Brilliant thing. So yeah. what you're talking about is is putting the chisel, so to speak, into um, in, in some ways into the hands of all of these disciplines um, who need it. If we're going to yeah. perceive and, and operate in the world uh, that very much is based on or um, involves these things, then everyone yep. needs access. Yep. And, and, and Bob points out to me, Bob Bain, that this history professor that I'm working with, that it goes both ways. So yes, the historians can really use science to get new insights into their, into their, the history that they're exploring. And they can use tools of computation visualization to be able to explore these historical questions. But history also gives us new insights into science. Mm. So the one picture that I described in, in my talk of the Hughes printing telegraph machine, um, this idea that when we look at these telegraph machines that pressed, uh, that you generated a letter by pressing a piano key, yeah. and we say, well, that's ludicrous. Well, but they didn't have QWERTY yet. And you realize that, and that was a long period. It was 30 years where people were trying to make printing telegraph machines, but they didn't have anything that looks like today's typewriter keyboards. So it, it seems so, so, so anachronistic, but it's not. At the time, that was a great idea. I need a keyboard? Well, a piano keyboard. That's what a keyboard is. Um, and so the history re- makes us realize that some ideas we just couldn't have yet. Mm. Uh, Big History Project does this a lot, that there are things that we, you know, uh, issues of things like plate tectonics or um, a a particular example I thought was amazing, um, that the idea that there was a meteor that hit the earth and destroy essentially led to the decline of all the dinosaurs really rapidly. Geologists just didn't buy it for many years because geology was always the long, slow science. Nothing happened sharply. Nothing changed things dramatically. And it wasn't until, you know, relatively recently within the last 50 years that people were able to say, okay, look at where all the iridium is in the world. How did that get there? Look, a meteor that hit in this place in the Yucatan Peninsula at just this time explains all of the iridium in the world. That was the sort of thing that 
but you know, to do the data science, to do the data collection, to make this argument took many years. It's relatively new. So you could understand if a geologist in, say, 1800s, you said, you know, a meteor destroyed the dinosaurs. No way. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Now, okay. Yeah. Because the science, the, the history, science lives in a historical progression, and ideas arrive at a particular time and weren't there before. And so we can't judge the science in the same way. Yeah. It, in, it's interesting to think about in the context of the a big history, mm-hmm. um, where we would just in this conversation about uh, computer science, for example, sort of whether that would even register on the timeline of of big history, right? We're in such a oh. a moment. Computing is so new. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, I'm I'm thrilled to be speaking at the SIGC conference, the yeah. Specialist Group in Computer Science Education, the end of February, March 1st, um, which will be the 50th anniversary of SIGC. Curriculum 68, the first definition of the computer science curriculum, it's only 50 years old. Yeah. We are so new uh, in terms of, of sciences, in terms of history overall. Um, and so I, I really appreciated Margaret's point that some of the things we're arguing about, what well, we were arguing about back in the 1970s and 80s, yeah. it's really not surprising. That's a relatively short period of time to come to resolution on these ideas. Um, I, I wrote a blog post a while ago about if we really wanted to take computation across the curriculum seriously, um, we should go back and look at those old Logo books. Mm. Logo really did do this. There's a wonderful book by Paul Goldenberg. Um, now he's with EDC, but many years ago, he was the Logo editor for MIT Press. And he himself wrote a book about learning linguistics with Logo. Uh. And it was such a cool, it had all these neat ideas. So one of them was, it's a fairly simple Logo program to input a, um, uh, some string, a phrase in some language, and remove all the vowels and make them Xs. Now, if you give it some Russian, give it some French, give it some English. Afterward, with all these X's and replace the vowels, can you tell the difference between the three languages? Oh, interesting. Now, what makes a language a language? What makes Russian different from French? Mm-hmm. And you can use computation to start of exploring ideas. Oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah, and you know, back in the logo days, back in the 1980s, people explored these ideas a lot. I have a on my shelf at home. I have visual modeling with logo, algebra with logo, Brian Harvey's wonderful computer science logo style. People use logo to explore a wide range of ideas, and then logo went away. But now we're revisiting what is the role of computation and particular programming in a lot of different disciplines, so we can make explore new ideas in those different disciplines and learn those disciplines better and in, in, in novel ways, maybe reach people that we wouldn't otherwise. Mm. Logo did started doing that a lot of years ago. So can I ask, uh, by the way, you mentioned EDC earlier, and yeah. a lot of people confuse when they hear that, that acronym uh, for economic development, but it's actually the Education Development Center. That's right. Um, who have been in around. In Massachusetts, here in New York. Yeah, yeah. A long time, and they've done some really, really important research, especially as it relates to this intersection between um, technology and learning. Absolutely. I want to ask you a personal question. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point for you did, do you think computing became personally important? You know, like really mm-hmm. was the moment. We talked this morning through um, Margaret's conversation uh, or, or uh, address about um, engagement. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I wonder for somebody like you, what was the moment where 
computing became personally important, not just sort of, um, you know, a thing that was vaguely interesting, but, but really drives you at this point to yeah. be a professor yeah. training folks to care as much about it as you do. Um, so I was a very fortunate high schooler. Um, my parents sent me to a, a private high school in Detroit, um, Bishop Foley High School in Madison Heights. And they happened to have more than one computer science course. And so I first met BASIC as a sophomore. My teacher was wow. Diane DeRiker. And this would have been in the This mid-70s. was 1978. Wow. Yeah. So I, so before I graduated from high school, I took a class in basic. I took a class in Fortran. I took an, a ninth class in COBOL because that class in basic just got me so excited. And so I, uh, and then uh, back in those days, you may remember this is a million years ago, there were these personal computer shops. Mm. You know, there was the Byte shop. And I happened to live near a computer shop and I went and begged for a job and I was stock boy, but eventually I was also a technician. I helped nice. repair computers. I wrote software for them. Um, and so it was in high school that I really fell in love with computing. And then, um, and this, this is going to, this overlaps with what I do today. Um, I was a senior in high school mm-hmm. when one of my teachers, my calculus teacher, Mary Leary, who taught me Fortran also, she taught both, um, was approached, you know, they wanted to teach a class on, on basic and personal computers at the adult community education. Would you be willing to do it? She said, I'm too busy. But I've got this bright high school student. Why don't you take him? Oh, neat. So I started teaching computer science to adults, teaching basic and how a personal computer worked in February of 1980. Wow. And uh, I then went to Wayne State University in Detroit and continued teaching that class and started teaching um, after school programs to middle school and high school kids. Uh, I eventually taught GED classes and taught robotics, assembly language for robotics students at Macomb Community College. Mm. So all by the time I graduated with my undergraduate degree, um, I'd probably taught hundreds of hours in the classroom uh, at a wide, vari- wide variety of, of ages. So when I worked at Bell Labs in 82, and uh, I used to wander through the Homedale Library, what a wonderful library, yeah. that's when I discovered, um, someone had said to me, you know, you should, you should look at Alan Kay's stuff. I think you'd like that. Uh-huh. And I found the paper, Personal Dynamic Media. And that's what really blew my mind, the idea of, we need to make computers as a tool for thought. Uh, that's when I decided to go to graduate school. Brilliant. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that vision of, with, you know, I, I discovered later Logo, and I did a lot in Logo, and, and Seymour Papert, and all of that crew. I actually discovered Alan first, and that's the vision that drove me to say, this is what programming is for. Programming is a medium for thought. It's a way of learning. Um, and that's been driving me for uh, multiple decades now. Boy, does that sound like a long time. Fantastic. Well, like we were saying, it doesn't, it doesn't, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was, um, I don't think you can have a conference like this and not have Seymour Papert's work come up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it often sort of... Papert was the head of the spear for a team that mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned a few of them who developed logo and, and um, it came up this morning. I was um, also fortunate to be in a school system 
um, in New Jersey, not mm. far from Bell Labs, yeah. where um, I was one of the, the first generations that had computer science as a class in middle school. Wow. Um, That's amazing. Where our stories diverge, however, is that um, I went to computers was the name of the class. Mm. And we sat in these rows in front of the computers. Mm -hmm. And um, this was probably only, you know, this was, I'm sure, the result of lots of the grant funding that went into Papert's work to figure out what it means to scale and use some of the software that had been developed. And and I was the, I was the learner yeah. that was really the first generation that was sort of receiving it, you know, at mm -hmm, a distance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from my, you know, N is one here, but I think it's not. I think if, if we uh, play that out and ask more people, it didn't work. It didn't take, yeah. right? I sat down in front of, you know, I programmed the turtle a little bit. I had a teacher who was vaguely interested in young people being engaged yeah. in this stuff, was clearly talented as, uh, he was probably a programmer uh, doing this mm -hmm. as a part-time job. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But once I made the turtle go, it was like, that was it. Yeah. And I never, um, until much later, uh, you know, I went to film school and it wasn't really until then as an undergraduate that I started to, for all the reasons you're describing uh, media and computation being a complement and important to one another, that was when this became more important to me. And, and film skill. And that's, I, that's remarkable. I still feel like um, I'm... I, I still feel very much like I'm uh, discovering it. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, so here's my question: mm -hmm. Is how w w this was a focus this morning, and I know the interest and concern of a lot of people in this room is. As I'm watching your talk, I'm thinking, well, how you know how do we produce, uh, however many million Mark Guzdial. Uh, clones, mm -hmm. not that we want clones, but um, how do we produce Mark Guzdials in every school, in the, in every public school in the country? Yeah. Um, every, uh, make sure that every great library, um, community museum, spaces where young people are dropping in and have a chance to become exposed to this stuff. How do we make sure that what happened to me mm -hmm. isn't happening to another generation where these, you know, when you hear about computer science from you mm -hmm. at a, a prestigious institution, it looks one way and yeah. the ideas are a, a certain sort of, um, you know, juicy and, and fresh off the vine. Yeah. And then when you pick it up in a public school, it, it's a very different experience. So in, from your perspective and you're very open about, um, and I appreciate how much you, uh, are forward about, you know, I'm, I'm not in the classroom. I'm not doing that, true. that hard work. Yep. Um, but from your perspective, I'm curious, what are the things that um, you in, in higher ed, what do you think are the most important parts of your work that will help um, us to improve the uptake and the, and the sort of scale, if you want to think about it that way? When it, because in some ways, it feels like you're, you are carrying the torch for these, these folks that you've learned so much from. Um, how do we improve on the uptake and making sure that it looks more authentic to what Papert would have wanted? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, thank you. I'm certainly not the only one carrying the torch. I mean, there's a lot of folks. Sure. I learned, um, I mean, one of, all right, 
for, for any of our personal stories, there's all this luck. All right. So yeah. there's, there's all these amazing coincidences. Um, I went to the University of Michigan to start this joint PhD before Elliot got there. And uh, I, yeah, I, I didn't know that Elliot was coming. I knew of Elliot. I'd certainly read his stuff. And I was blown away when I found out he was coming to Michigan. Yeah. And I found out about that because I was introduced by his research scientist who was hanging out in the School of Ed, Yasmin Kafayi, who is now very famous. She was involved with the development of Scratch with Mitchell. She did all of the hard work of testing it in uh, computer clubhouses uh, around yeah. the world. Um, She's now at... Uh, University She's of Penn. Well done, yeah. yes, sir. And uh, I, I, her ma, her her book connected code gave me a lot of my ideas about literacy. She talks a lot about what is literacy and what does it mean to. She, Yasmin would totally buy Diane Levitt's notion of agency, yeah. but she would see agency as being part of literacy. If you don't have agency, you don't need literacy, and literacy is a way of expressing that agency. Um, but I, the, 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 the point, the, the question is a really important and really hard one. Um, I worry a little bit that we emphasize too much the K through 12 side, not that it isn't absolutely critical, but the other part that has to happen, in my opinion, is computer science at the higher ed level, not just to produce software developers. Hmm. And this is not a message which plays out well with computer scientists right now who are dealing with in this enormous rise in enrollment. We heard uh, Dean Greg Morissette talk about that this morning, that their numbers are, are exploding. It's happening to most, particularly state level universities and larger uh, um, enormous growth in enrollment in computer science, but I think we need to push that further. I think that we should be teaching everyone at every university about computer science and how to program. And the reason why these are connected is because the way that you create literacy is by creating a literate culture, and now it matters. I think we have to figure out what are the tools that work in K-12, what are the curriculum, but to get the kids to care we need a literate culture where computation is expected, where computation is valued, or having computational literacy is something that, oh, I want that. We see this in the CS majors, but we need it across the board. Um, there's another kind of a story I could have told this morning uh, that I'm actually working on as part of the work that I've been doing in public policy in Georgia with Georgia Computes from 2006 to 2012 with mm -hmm. Barbara Erickson, and then the work we've been doing with uh, Rick Adrian and Renee Fall in University University of Massachusetts Amherst for the last six years with ESEP, Expanding Computing Education Pathways. We work with 16 states in Puerto Rico. Um, even in states where there is computer science defined, even in states where there's a large percentage of t schools that have computer science teachers, we're not seeing a lot of uptake. Um, my student, Miranda Parker, is studying Georgia schools. Um, depending on how you count, it's somewhere between 40 and 60% of high schools have or currently offer computer science. Less than 1% of Georgia high school students take computer science. Mm -hmm. Anne Leftwich just did this detailed study in Indiana. The, their most popular computer science course in all of Indiana high schools enrolls 0.5% of Indiana high school students. We're building the field of dreams, but nobody's coming. Yeah. Um, how do you make kids care about wanting to know about computing? You create a culture of computation. So I think if we pushed it more at the higher ed level so that kids who, would, who are going into humanities and social sciences also see, wow, this computation stuff, I could use this. Mm. It doesn't have to be 100% buy-in. But unless they see it, unless you show it to them, unless you make it connected to them, they're not going to use it. Yeah. I mean, some will. I mean, there's a large percentage of end-user programmers in the world. Um, 
but I think we could make it a lot bigger. And if every kid came up through K through 12 and knew that their mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles, they all use some programming. You yeah. know, programming is an expected thing. It's, it's useful. You should learn some programming. Then they will too. There's a wonderful book. Um, oh, shoot. The, the uh, Proust and the Squid, I think is the name. I'm mm. not going to remember the, the title right now. Um, but it's uh, about the story of how the brain is changed by literacy. And, um, and, and one of the stories is how did we develop literate cultures at all? The Egyptians didn't really have a literate culture. They had hieroglyphics, but hieroglyphics were too hard to learn. Um, and uh, so not very many people learned them. So there wasn't really a culture of people reading and writing. Part of what made us have a literate culture was when we invented alphabets, having A, B, C, D, E, F, G, putting them in order and having a recognizable order makes it easier to memorize. A lot of becoming literate in textual languages is actually drill and practice, lots and lots of practice, lots and lots. And so having things like the alphabet in a predefined order, I mean, if you think about it, the letters don't have to be in an order, but having them in order makes them easier to learn. Mm -hmm. And if it's easier to learn, then more people learn it. And if more people learn it, well, then there's things to read and write, and then you have a culture. I think we have to think about a similar thing for computation. So I think that pushing it more at the higher ed level is important for it to make sense and be valuable at the K through 12 level. So I think that the work that's going on here at this workshop is critical. We have to figure it out K through 12, but the, the issue of, in some sense, you know, the, the hearts and minds of kids, how do you make them care about programming and computation? The teacher can do a lot, but it's also on, it's on the culture. Yeah. How do we build a computationally literate culture? I put that more on higher ed. Yeah. Interesting. So, so for you, the, the critical role for you is about building the ecosystem from, from that. Exactly. Ecosystem is a great way of thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. I think you said, you said this really, uh, you said many interesting things. Uh, in, in fact, most of the things you're saying are, are, uh, fascinating to me. Um, thank you. But when you said um, that you think that um, Dr. Kafai, who's at University of Pennsylvania, by the way, uh, Proust and the Squid was Marianne Wolf. That's it. Yes. Which, Thank which, you. Which um, is I mention uh, to clarify for anybody who um, doesn't want to go look at the show notes for the link that I'll put there. <laughs> okay. Um, and that's not because I knew it. It's because I had uh, a phone at my fingertips to look while you were talking. Um, but you said the thing about um, Yasmin Kafai would think that agency and literacy are are more intertwined, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and that's so interesting. And I, 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 um, what you said about sequence that ma it makes me think a lot of. It's hard to think about literacy and not think for me about uh, Paulo Freire, mm -hmm, um, right? Yeah, and um, Freire as as yeah, many of, the oppressed. of of us Americans would call him. Um, I think I think he would have been uh, very much pro. Uh, I think he would have been in that camp. I think Yasmin is in mm -hmm. some way, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, a contemporary of uh, of Freire. I think so. I think so. Um, you know, it it really is about agency and literacy coming together, and and these the sequence and semantics 
being very intertwined in, mm-hmm. in how, mm-hmm. um, you know, agency is sort of wrapped into that as a cycle in a way. Yep. Um, so anyway, this, you're, you're blowing my mind a little bit because it's, it's really nice to make some of these connections. And I think that they're really, really important connections. Um, the more educators are thinking about why this stuff is important and what role they play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think we, fall into the trap of making it about sort of, the, uh, you know, a sort of polemics mm-hmm. um, where it's, you know, no, it's K-12, no, it's higher ed or, or no, it's formal, not informal or, you know, and, and it's, it's like that, that duality is for some reason important to how we make meaning of things. But when you really peel away, um, we all have a role to play. Yep. They're all really critical, um, and uh, we we are in the scheme of the sort of big history yeah. as we look at it. We're at the very start of figuring this out, yep. and uh, I'm really grateful that we have uh, in in this building alone today. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a lot of really brilliant people working on the issue, yeah. Yeah. and so um, I thank you for your time. I really hope that this is uh, a, a an appetizer or to have you back to talk about more because I have so many questions about your talk earlier. Um, I confirm with Diane that that we are going to publish the talk as Wonderful. an episode of the Thank show. You. Oh, that's and, so lovely. Uh, you'll have it have it to um, to share. Mark, I feel really lucky to have uh, met you um, and to be able to have this conversation. And I want to encourage everybody to follow you on Twitter. And you seem like a pretty accessible, um, accessible guy uh, through your social media. And so I would, is it okay if I encourage people to reach out, to reach out and, and, uh, and you seem like somebody who's up for dialogue over social media. Um, Can we, can we plug your social media handle so that people know where to find you? Sure. I'm at Guzdial on Twitter, and then uh, my blog is computinged.wordpress.com. Great. Anything else, um, if, I, if I let you have the last word, what would it be? Thank you. I'm really grateful. This is a really op- interesting opportunity, great conversation. Great. Thanks, Mark. My pleasure. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter, at M.A. Lesser. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, an Ithaca bomber, an engineer of digital things and fresh beats. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. No such thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This show would not be possible without the support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. 